Pastor George Mueller was filled with hope, but not for the reasons you'd expect. He wasn't filled with hope because of his marriage, and that's because after 39 years of being happily married, his wife Mary had died of rheumatic fever. And he recalled later how he strengthened himself after losing his beloved wife. He wrote this, the last portion of Scripture which I read to my precious wife was, and he doesn't say this, but it's Psalm 84, <clears throat> the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will He withhold from them that walk uprightly. Now, if we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've received grace. We're partakers of grace. And to all such, He will give glory also. I said to myself with regard to the latter part, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. I am myself a poor, worthless sinner, but I have been saved by the blood of Christ. I do not live in sin. I walk uprightly before God. Therefore, if it is really good for me, my darling wife will be raised up again, sick as she is. God will restore her again. But if she is not restored again, then it would not be a good thing for me. And so my heart was at rest. I was satisfied with God, and all this springs, as I have often said before, from taking God at His Word, believing what He says. That kind of hope that is so sturdy, so deep, so vibrant, it can only thrive after losing a beloved spouse when it's someone who takes God at His Word. Last week, we learned from Kirk that hope is the idea in the Bible, not of a wish, but a confident assurance about a future promise God has made in the present. And though George Mueller doesn't explicitly refer to it in the quote I just read to you, that kind of hope is only made possible because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. 1 Corinthians 1512. Today, of course, is Palm Sunday. Cam alluded to that. And uh, we've come to the time of year when we remember the events of the Passion Week, particularly the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Earlier in the service, we witnessed two baptisms, uh, Bradley and Adeline. And when Bradley and Adeline were raised out of the water, the symbolism of that was it, it represented their connection with Jesus by faith. And as they came out of the waters, that pictured their future resurrection by their faith in Jesus. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead by God the Father, so Bradley and Adeline will be raised from the dead through faith in Jesus. And so, for the sermon this morning, because of the, what, what, the symbolism of what we've just witnessed, and because typically we focus on the crucifixion and resurrection during uh, the, the week of Passion, uh, because of that, I want to focus our thoughts for this morning's message on the resurrection, and I want to do so from 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if you want to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, you can read historical accounts of it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then the New Testament apostles, they come along, and in their letters to churches and individuals, they talk about the meaning of Christ's resurrection from the dead. And the reason I've chosen 1 Corinthians 13 today is because it is the most extended treatise in the New Testament letters talking about the meaning of His resurrection and what His resurrection has produced. 
Now, of course, we've, we've been in Ephesians, and I'm taking a break from Ephesians for Passion Week, and we're jumping into uh, Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. And if you're a Christian and you've read through First and Second Corinthians, you probably know this already. The church in Corinth, it was a bit of a mess. And the picture that's presented from both of Paul's letters and also from the book of Acts is that the church had a lot of problems, and I think part of that sprung from its population. It was not populated, the, the early church in Corinth was not populated by Jews and God-fearing Greeks who had been saved out of the synagogue and therefore knew the Old Testament. The picture is of uh, Greeks and Romans who got saved straight out of paganism and didn't know the Old Testament. And so, Paul has to reason with them about why they can't follow Jesus and, for example, live immoral lives. He has to walk them through. Then we look at that as Christians who know our Old Testament as a, like a very basic thing, but that's what Paul had to do because it was people saved straight out of paganism. There was trouble in the church. And to add to all of their other problems, there were false teachers who had come into the church, and they were teaching that there is no resurrection from the dead. And so, in the passage we come to today, Paul is going to confront that false teaching, but he's going to do so in what I think is a very creative and unique way. He's going to actually do so by indulging the idea of what it would be like if what the false teachers said is true. He's going to ask the hypothetical question, what if? What if there is no resurrection from the dead? Look at 1 Corinthians 15 verses 12 and following with me. Now, if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is vain. Before we talk about what Paul says there, I think there's an adult conversation we need to have about our biases as contemporary Americans. One of the biases in our culture that influences our own thinking, and I think we bring it into the church even as followers of Jesus, we have a bias as Americans uh, that I would like to label chronological snobbery. We are infatuated with and enthralled with everything new, and we tend to look down on anything or person or idea that's old. In fact, the spirit of progressivism teaches us that whatever was in the past is either just plain irrelevant, or it's so tainted by the evil that was in the past that it's suspect, and you should be suspicious of it. But the apostles teach us to look back at the past, to look back at past history, to the resurrection of Jesus as the most pivotal event in all of human history. They teach us the importance of looking back at the past acts of God. And we need to admit that that is strange for us as Americans because we're not taught to think that way in terms of the relevance of the past. Let me give you an example. Imagine for a moment that tomorrow incontrovertible evidence came out that Julius Caesar had never lived. It was all made up. He wasn't a historical figure. It was all made up. Those books he wrote about, his, the book he wrote about his Gaelic wars, his ascension to power, uh, his assassination, all of it was just made up. Just think about if, if you found that out tomorrow, how rocked your world would be. 
Yeah, see, some of you are getting it. I'm being sarcastic. Yeah, exactly. Think about it. It, Let's just, what if? What if that happened? Okay, well, I like history. That would be a little confusing to me. I'd have some questions for historians like, well, but Julius Caesar is a big part of Roman history. How did this happen? Do we need to, like, rethink Roman history now? But in terms, even me as someone who loves history, it wouldn't really change that much in my life, right? I mean, I would still believe what I believe about Christianity. Uh, Julius Caesar has nothing to do with the New Testament or Christianity as a whole. I would still have the same job I have. You would probably still have the same job you have. I'd still have the same family I have. I don't think it would, I don't think it would come between Brooke and I and become this topic of argument in our marriage. Like, it wouldn't make that much of a difference. Why? Because things that happened thousands of years ago on another continent in Roman history aren't that relevant to my daily life. And guess what? The resurrection happened on another continent 2,000-ish years ago, around a little bit after Julius Caesar. And so, it's easy, I think, for Americans to look back at the resurrection, even as Christians, and see that, well, yeah, it's important, but how important is it to my daily life? Um, Now, around Easter, there is this thing, this tradition that Christians have, and I I think many of you in this room, you, you know the tradition. And so, uh, it's, a, it's a call and a response, and uh, I'm going to do it now. I'm going to give the call. And if you're a Christian this morning and you want to respond, uh, please feel welcome to do so. You ready? He is risen. He is risen All right. Now you're all on the hook. And here's what I mean. You're all on the hook because you made a historical truth claim. You made a factual historical claim about what has happened in history, right? Um, And one of the unique things about the Christian faith is that our faith is grounded in history as no other religion of the world is or could be. Uh, Our faith is grounded in real history. For that reason, half of the Bible, over half of the Bible, is all historical narrative. When you open your Bible, Genesis all the way to Nehemiah is one unbroken, moving forward historical narrative. And the same pattern's true in the New Testament. When you open your New Testament, Matthew through the book of Acts, which are large, all five of those are large books, that's all one unbroken, moving forward narrative. And then you come to the New Testament letters where the apostles explain the meaning of that history and what happened. And what that means is this. The significance of all these historical truth claims means that our faith is potentially falsifiable. If you could prove that Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then Christianity falls like a house of cards. Most other religions, by contrast, are the function of a grand thinker who had grand metaphysical thoughts, and he shared his thoughts, but none of it's really uh, verifiable or falsifiable. You just sort of read it and either take it or leave it. But we've invested the eternal safekeeping of our souls to a series of historical truth claims that culminates in the resurrection of Christ. And so, the historicity of this entire thing is really important. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, it presents problems for Christianity. First of all, it means that our message has an integrity problem. Look at what Paul says in verses 15 and 16. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testify against God 
that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Paul is saying, look, if there is no resurrection and Christ didn't, uh, God didn't raise Jesus from the dead, I'm in big trouble because I've been traveling around misrepresenting God, claiming that He has an only begotten Son by nature who took uh, on human flesh, added humanity to His divine nature, came, dwelled among us, died as a sacrifice for our sins, and I'm claiming that God raised Him up again, and I'm misrepresenting God because that wouldn't be the case. And I don't think God's going to be okay with that. He's going to be unhappy with me for that. And if you publicly confess Jesus as Lord, and if you said just a few moments ago, He's risen indeed, right, then you've done the same thing Paul is talking about here. If there's no resurrection, then Jesus hasn't been raised, we're misrepresenting God, and we have an integrity problem with the truth of our Christian message. But that's not all. We also have a spiritual problem. Look at verse uh, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins. If Christ hasn't been raised, we have a spiritual problem. We're estranged from God because of our rebellion and sin, but the hope of Christianity is that the voluntary sacrifice of Jesus on the cross has paid the penalty for our sins, and this is important, When God the Father raised the Son from the dead, it was proof positive that the Father accepted the sacrifice of the Son. There is a way in which the resurrection is not only the victory of Jesus over sin and death, there's also a way in which His resurrection is, uh, it shows that His death was accredited, if you will, it was acceptable by God the Father. But if Jesus wasn't raised, then His sacrifice wasn't acceptable, our faith is empty, we're still in our sins, and we're still going to have to face God, but without a mediator, without uh, an advocate, without anybody to represent us, we're going to be on our own. Our whole faith is a sham, and we still have the same spiritual problem we had before we came to Jesus. But that's not all. Not only do we have an integrity problem with the truth of our message, not only do we still have the same spiritual problem we had before we came to Jesus, if there is no resurrection, we also have a very personal problem as it comes and relates to our loved ones. Look at verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. When Paul uses the phrase, and this is true of all of the apostles, when they use the phrase fallen asleep to talk about Christians who've died, it's not a euphemism, and it's not a figure of speech they're using to try and soften uh, the horror uh, of death. That's not what's going on. The souls of departed Christians have gone to be with God, and one day their bodies will be raised, and they will be given new life. And from the perspective of eternity future, from the perspective of 10,000 years from now, when we look back on the time that their body was in the grave, it'll look as though they were only taking a nap. It's, it's the apostle's way of getting us to think eternally and see that death is temporary. There is a resurrection from the dead coming. But if Christ wasn't raised, then all those Christians who have died are gone forever. And all those things we said about being reunited with them and seeing them again someday are false. We'll never see them again. 
Now, if that's the case, can you imagine, can you understand why the Apostle Paul would make this audacious claim? Verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Can you understand why, if we've misrepresented God uh, on the issue of the resurrection, and if we're still estranged from God by our sin, and if all our loved ones are gone forever and death is also the end for us, can you understand why of all people on planet earth, the Christians would be most to be pitied? In this broken world, there's a lot of people you should feel sorry for. And if it turns out there is no resurrection from the dead, the people you should feel most sorry for are Christians. But it's at this very point in the passage that I think as American Christians, we don't track with what Paul's saying. Um, uh, We don't track with his logic. Now, I say this because of things I've heard Christians say in witnessing conversations, in debates, even things I've heard Christians say publicly. The question comes up in a debate or in a discussion, what if you were to find out that Christianity isn't true and that, uh, th- that none of this is real? Uh, what would happen then? And I've heard well-intentioned Christians say, well, if Christianity turns out to be false, I believe my Christianity still did me good in the end because it helped me live a better life. It was my Christianity that inspired me to be less selfish and less self-focused and more loving towards other people, and I honestly believe that my Christianity is what's helped me to have better relationships than I would have had uh, if I had never become a Christian. And behind that logic is kind of this confession, this idea that a Christian is almost saying something like this, look, if tomorrow I were to receive incontrovertible evidence that Jesus wasn't raised, I'm not going to claim it wouldn't change my life, okay? Like, I'd, I'd probably go to church less often, all right? Like, I, I'd probably read the Bible, study the Bible a little bit less. I mean, some things would change in my life, but what would I really lose in the end? Now, if that's the way you're thinking, you're not in tune with the kind of life that the apostles are talking about when they talk about what it means to follow Jesus. Let's just use Paul, instead of using you and the way Christianity has helped you be less selfish, let's use Paul as a case study. Paul's earthly life didn't get better when he chose to follow Jesus. He got kicked out of the synagogue. He got kicked out of his own ethnicity. His own people didn't want to have anything to do with him. He traveled around in dangerous situations for the spread of the gospel. Uh, He was imprisoned multiple times. Uh, If God wasn't going to raise Paul from the dead, the life he lived was an utter waste, which means that contained within this passage, for you and I as Christians, is a haunting question that everyone here who's a Christian needs to ask, and it's this. If Jesus wasn't raised, what do you stand to lose? Are there people in your life who don't follow Jesus, who know you well, that would look at you and say, I pity them. I feel so bad for them. They've invested so much in their Christianity, and it's all a waste. I mean, I'm not going to ask them because it would be impolite, but I wouldn't be shocked if over the years they've literally given tens of thousands of dollars to Christian causes, and none of it's going anywhere. They spend all this time, they carve out time in their schedule to study a book that I don't think we can trust, 
and to offer prayers to a Jesus who isn't listening. He didn't rise from the dead. It's all going nowhere. And not only that, they've been manipulated by a sham forgiveness they think they've received into feeling obligated to forgive other people who they need to cut off for their own self-protection. I feel sorry for them. Is there anybody in your life as a Christian who would look at the decisions you're making and say, I feel sorry for them. They could be out hiking on a beautiful Sunday morning that's sunny, and instead they're investing in this other thing. If you're a Christian, the Apostle Paul would say that if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, the people you should feel sorry for are yourself as a Christian and your friends and family who follow Christ. But Paul doesn't end the argument there. That's all very helpful, very instructive, but Paul doesn't end his argument there. Uh, Look at what he says in verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, previously Paul was dealing with this false teaching by asking a hypothetical question, but notice here he doesn't come back with a counter-argument by framing up a brand new hypothetical question. It's not hypothetical at all. He's saying Jesus was raised from the dead. Many of the women who followed Jesus saw Him after He rose from the dead. The disciples saw Him. At one point, he, uh, before His ascension, He appeared to over 500 followers in Galilee. Paul himself, who wrote this letter, he saw the risen Christ in all His glory, and it was really awkward because Paul was on his way to Damascus to imprison Christians, and uh, Christ Himself said, Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, right? Paul himself had seen the risen Christ. If the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, one of the things you have to try to explain is the lives of the apostles. They went around proclaiming that Jesus has, had been uh, raised from the dead by God when all, of it got, when all it got them was trouble, persecution, imprisonment, and death. Uh, you could say that perhaps maybe they were a bunch of charlatans just trying to get ahead, but it wasn't getting them ahead, and it was obvious for most of their ministry. They received persecution both from Jews and from Greeks and Romans. And saying that all the apostles were delusional, that's not a great option either, because when you read their letters, they're clearly not out of their minds. And people who are delusional, they don't all have the, 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 right? they don't all have the same hallucination. They don't all claim to see the same thing. Jesus was raised. There are multiple eyewitness accounts of His resurrection. You can read them for yourself in the pages of the New Testament. And since He has been raised, there are some undeniable conclusions that His resurrection drives us to. The first is that since Christ has been raised, all who believe in Him will also be raised. Look at verses 20 through 23. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and after that those who are Christ's at His coming." Um, many of you know that uh, my family and I, we live in Spotsylvania, and uh, having moved from Southern California, I'm a little bit of a wimp about the winter. 
I like it when it gets warmer out. And one of the things that gives me hope in winter is that the first sign that winter is going to end soon and spring is coming uh, on our property, the first sign of that are the crocuses, right? They come up even before the daffodils, the beautiful purple flowers. And even though it's still cold out when I see them, I know winter isn't going to win, right? The white witch has been vanquished and spring, spring is coming soon, right? Um, and, and Paul uses here the idea, that kind of hope, he uses first fruits. A few years ago, Brooke asked me to build a raised, uh, a raised flower bed for her so that she could grow some vegetables. And so I got all the materials and a dump truck full of dirt, and I made 40 square feet of planting area with these boxes. And uh, one of the things we planted was tomatoes. And I remember the very first year when we got the first ripe red tomato, and I was showing the children, and I was telling them, this is a sign that more fresh tomatoes are coming. That's the idea of first fruits. The first fruit of the crop is proof positive that the crop has survived to maturity, and it's going to yield a harvest. And Paul calls Christ here the first fruits from the dead. His resurrection is proof positive that all who follow Him will be raised. And Paul goes in to explain functionally how this works in verses 21 and 22. He explains that through Adam's sin, death came into the world and all people die. And not only that, through Adam's sin, the proclivity to sin was passed on to all future generations. Mankind has two representatives. Adam was our first representative. He failed. Sin and death entered the world. Um, But we have a second representative. Now, let's stop there just for a moment and talk about Adam, Um, and I'll just share like a personal problem here, and I think it relates to other people as Americans and as Western people. We don't like the idea of the way Adam's sin affected us. We're a very individualistic, captain of my own fate, I'll choose for myself kind of people. And I'm part of it. I admit it. I admit that when I read this, I, even as a pastor, even as a Christian, I bristle a little bit. I hate the idea that what somebody else did thousands of years ago could negatively impact my life. I don't want to die for Adam's sin. If I'm going to die, I want to die for my own sin. So, let's think about that. Let's just counsel me wanting to die for my own sin for just a moment. Let's try to deal with the apparent unfairness of this, okay? On the one hand, we need to begin by saying this. The Bible records for us what will happen at the final judgment. There is a final day of accountability. There is a final day of reckoning where every sin will be accounted for and paid for either on the cross of Christ or in hell. And if you go, and you can go read about it for yourself. It's in Revelation chapter 20. It's not a long read. You can go read it for yourself after the service. If you go read Revelation 20, what you'll find is this. At the final judgment, nobody will be condemned for anything Adam did. Those who end up condemned are condemned because of their own actions, their own choices, the things that they did. So, in the final reckoning, according to Revelation chapter 20, there will be two groups of people. One group will receive mercy through their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The other group uh, will receive justice applied to them fairly, objectively, and equitably based on what they've done. So, if you're concerned about injustice, there's not going to be injustice on the end. On the other hand, when it comes to this discussion about 
two representatives for humanity in Scripture, we also need to say that God decided how this would work, and your opinion about it doesn't really matter a whole lot. And if you're really angry about Adam, remember, the only way out of our sin is to have a second representative for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't criticize Adam as a representative and then take all the benefits of Christ to yourself and argue about how unfair you think the system is. And not only that, you haven't done any better than Adam, right? You've knowingly broken God's law, took pleasure in doing it, and said, it was worth it, I'm going to do it again. It's not like you have this great track record. If you're upset by Adam being your unelected representative, understand this, the only way that you and I can be forgiven is by God sending another representative, His own son. And His own son succeeded where Adam failed. In his earthly life, Jesus always obeyed God's law, then voluntarily went to the cross as a perfect once-for-all, never-needs-to-be-repeated sacrifice for our sins. Though Adam did bring death into the world, Jesus brings new life. But this new life isn't for everybody. Look at verse 22. Paul says, "'For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive.'" And you might wonder, well, oh, so all humanity is made alive? Well, Paul is uh, writing this with a kind of Hebrew parallelism. Verse 23 restates verse 22 and expands and amplifies on it. And what we find is that not all of humanity will be made alive because of what Christ did. Look at verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ or belong to Christ at His coming. It's only those who belong to Christ who receive new and eternal life. And then notice where Paul goes with this argument next in verse 24. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, uh, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. I love that in this passage, Paul talks about death as our enemy And that in the very end, Jesus will so vanquish death that He'll completely abolish it and death will be no more. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, a day is coming when God Himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will no longer be any death or mourning or crying or pain. And having looked at what the Apostle Paul teaches us here uh, and what the resurrection means, I have a couple of thoughts for you who are already Christians. Uh, and then an invitation for those of you who aren't Christians. Uh, Just three thoughts this morning from uh, 1 Corinthians 15 for those of you who are already followers of Jesus. I want to begin by just pausing and drawing your attention back to how we started this service. How did we start this service? We started this service uh, by the church baptizing Bradley and Adeline. And uh, one of the great joys of the Christian life is that when we read Scripture, we find that God wasn't only changing people and transforming people and doing amazing works back in biblical times. He is still working in our day and working in our midst. And we've seen two examples of that in Bradley and Adeline's testimonies and also 
in their baptisms. And so, this is a joyous occasion in the life of our church. Baptismal services are like my favorite services that we do here, and this is a time to pause and just think about the joy of seeing people come to faith and repentance and express that faith publicly in baptism. And another joyous thought is this. Uh, it's obvious from Paul's words in this passage that there's a direct connection between the resurrection of Jesus and our future hope. And that should thrill you. That should excite you. If you're satisfied with the world the way it is, there's something wrong with you. You shouldn't be satisfied. You should be dissatisfied. You should hope for a day when death ends, and you should hope for Christ to come and make all things new. You should hope for eternity. Just because the resurrection of Jesus happened 2,000 years ago, kind of close to my Julius Caesar illustration, it doesn't mean that it's irrelevant to your life. It's actually the most important event in all of human history and the most important event in your eternal life story. And it's a reality that should bring you joy and give you hope even in the middle of life's difficulties. But brothers and sisters, the way that Paul talks about the resurrection here should also give pause for each one of us to stop and ask, what if? I mean, if Paul can go on for seven verses about what if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, surely we should stop and ask ourselves, what if He wasn't raised from the dead? Uh, and if you ask yourself, what if He wasn't raised from the dead, what would I stand to lose? And your answer is, uh, I don't think I'd lose that much. Maybe you need to stop and think about how you're choosing to live this Christian life, uh, right? Uh, uh, one of my prayers all week leading up to this moment is for those of you who are believers to stop and ask, what would I lose if there was no resurrection? And to be convicted about things in your life, radical commitments of faith you need to make. Maybe uh, God is calling you to be more generous with your money. Or maybe you've been indulging in a sin instead of fighting it, and you need to take some practical steps to fight it. Uh, maybe you need to draw near to Him on a more consistent basis by reading His Word and setting aside some scheduled time for focused prayer. Or maybe you need to forgive and reconcile with someone that you're estranged from. Or one of the most obvious things about Jesus, if you read in the New Testament, is that He loves the church, not the, not the building, the church, but the people He's called out of the world to follow Him. In fact, Jesus loves the church to death. Literally, He died to purchase the church. And so, maybe one of the commitments you need to make is to be, become meaningfully involved in the local church. We're not the only gospel-teaching, Bible-believing church in town, but if you're not a, a member who's meaningfully involved in a local church, maybe that's the next step of faith that you need to take. And the way I'm going to end the service here is I'm going to give a, a moment of silent prayer and reflection for everybody. Uh, and if you're a believer, I'd like you to stop and ask, what if, and ask the Holy Spirit to show you radical commitments of faith that you need to make. My invitation for those of you who are here but aren't Christians is to receive Jesus, and that means two things. To receive Jesus means that you try to objectively evaluate your life, and it's, it's impossible to be completely objective, right, because 
your bias in your own favor. It's a subjective thing to look at your own moral track record, right? But try as objectively as possible to look at what you've done and compare it to the rubric of God's law. I think if you'll do that objectively, or you try to do it objectively, you'll see that you have not kept God's law, and you need Jesus as a Savior. You need the sacrifice that He freely offered on the cross to cover your sins. That's what it means to receive Jesus. You rely on His sacrifice to make things right between you, you and God instead of you trying to make things right yourself. But to receive Jesus also means one other thing. It means you bow the knee to Jesus as Lord, which has got to mean that you stop ignoring God to live life your own way, according to your own rules, uh, in your own wisdom, your own strength, and you start living the way God calls you to in His Word. To receive Jesus means to rely on the death He died and also to bow the knee to Him as Lord. And so, in a moment here, I'll pray to close the service, but first, I'm going to give everybody a moment of silence for reflection and prayer, and then I'll pray.